Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting December 4th, 2015, we get an inside view of Russian President Vladimir Putin's not-so-secret war with the Internet, domestic and global, from Andrei Soldatov, editor of the Agentura.ru website covering the Kremlin secret services. His article in the WPJ Fall issue is headlined, Rusnet on the Offensive. We'll also point out other top features in the Fall issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the Paris terror attack continues to reverberate across Washington. Here's the key question asked of General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, during congressional testimony this week. Have we currently contained ISIL? We have not contained ISIL. Which is why the U.S. will send up to 150 more commandos to Iraq. They'll conduct raids, gather intelligence, and assist with targeting for airstrikes. This latest deployment adds to the 50 or so special forces just sent to Syria to help organize Arab and Kurdish fighters there. Meantime, President Obama in Paris for historic climate talks with scores of world leaders likens the fight against the Islamic State to the fight against global warming while saying both are threats that must be dealt with. There's one key difference. ISIS is here and now, whereas climate change... The effects are gradual, they're diffuse, people don't feel it immediately, and so there's not a lot of constituency pressure on politicians to do something about it right away. It kind of creeps up on you. The Paris conference runs through next week. Leaders hope for an accord to reduce man-made greenhouse gases that cause global warming. Any treaty the U.S. signs on carbon emissions needs a two-thirds Senate majority to approve. That seems quite unlikely, if not impossible, given current Republican control of that chamber. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. You know that it all began initially when the Internet first appeared as a special CIA project. And this is the way it is developing. The rest is what has made it to the market and took on huge proportions. Nevertheless, it is initially a military program, a special program, and special services are still at the center of things. In addition to ongoing involvement with hostilities in Ukraine and now Syria, Russian President Vladimir Putin is waging war with the Internet, both foreign and domestic. In St. Petersburg last year, he warned independent media officials that the World Wide Web was and is the spawn of spies at the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, that it was in fact launched by the Pentagon, specifically its Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, Putin would surely claim as a distinction without a difference as it concerns the privacy of millions of Russians who use it, and the national security of Russia itself. Through new laws, court crackdowns, and old-fashioned intimidation, Putin has attempted to exert increasing influence over the free flow of information and opinion via Russian Internet operations and international giants such as Google, Facebook, and Twitter. More recently, 
U.S. security experts and some members of Congress have expressed concern about Russian naval operations around the undersea cables that carry the Internet itself worldwide, presumably to eavesdrop or cut in a crisis. But Andrei Soldatov and Irina Barogan, editors of Agentura.ru, a journalist website covering Russia's secret services, say new technology in the end may be too difficult for old-fashioned Kremlin control. Their new book is The Red Web, the struggle between Russia's digital dictators and the new online revolutionaries from Public Affairs Press. Their analysis of the situation also appears in the fall 2015 issue of World Policy Journal under the headline Rusnet on the Offensive and I discussed it with Soldatov recently for this podcast. Andrei Soldatov, welcome to World Policy on Air. Uh, thank you for having me. First of all, give us an idea of just how much the Russian internet, Rusnet, has evolved. Well, now we have uh, more than 82 million uh, users in Russia, which means uh, that more than 66% of uh, the Russian population enjoys uh, some sort of access to, to the internet. And that is a huge, huge, huge market for, for Russian companies and for the international companies. Back in 1999, you note, Putin made some very positive promises to a meeting of Internet professionals. Give us the context and what he said at that time. Well, uh, he had his uh, first meeting with uh, the Internet entrepreneurs in uh, December of 1999. And uh, in December of 1999, Vladimir Putin was still a Russian prime minister, not the president. And he wanted to look liberal. Uh, he wanted to make an impression that he would give his support for, uh, for the new economists. That's why he decided to meet with uh, the people from the Internet. And uh, he had at hand uh, uh, some government initiatives to put the Internet under control. And of course, when he announced this initiative, uh, all people present at the meeting uh, were outraged and expressed their uh, unhappiness with this idea. And immediately Putin uh, said, look, yes, I understand. Maybe we need to give the Internet a free hand. But it seems that it was uh, a very well orchestrated uh, attempt to look positive and uh, advanced in comparison with uh, Boris Yeltsin, uh, the president of Russia uh, in, in December of 1999. And many of people who were present at the meeting thought it was a sort of game, just to look good. It was predictable that Putin would sooner or later seek to have more influence over tech sectors of commerce and the pesky marketplace of ideas. But you say annexation of Crimea and pro-Russian military action elsewhere in Ukraine escalated that process as Internet content uh, clashed with Kremlin versions of events. Tell us first about government pressure on social networks early last March. Uh, yeah, it seems it was uh, not uh, a coincidence uh, that we got the annexation of Crimea and the immediate attack on Russian social networks uh, immediately after that. Uh, we got uh, the Russian offensive, actually the government offensive, against uh, the most popular Russian social network called Vkontakte. And uh, the founder of uh, this company, Vkontakte, was uh, finally forced out of the country, and he was replaced by a, a guy, his name is Boris Dobrodev, and this choice was symbolic 
because Boris Dobrodev is the son of Oleg Dobrodev, who is the chief of uh, uh, all Russian state broadcasting and radio uh, uh, corporation. So we have a father to control the Russian television and broadcasting company and a son to control the most popular Russian social network. And for some time, uh, it seems like the Kremlin was quite happy. They thought that they got the network under control. Then came a convening of parliaments, two houses on March 18th. Set the scene and tell us what Putin said at that point. Uh, it was a, a very uh, emotional speech. Uh, uh, Later, it was called a Crimea speech. And Putin said uh, it was all about historical ideas about that Crimea was always Russian, etc., etc. But finally, he said some words about the opposition. He said that the opposition in Russia actually is the first column. And he even used the term national traitors. And of course, everybody understood that uh, he actually, he, he meant people who were critical of the annexation of Crimea. And uh, quite simultaneously with his speech, the special, the special website was uh, launched, called it uh, .net, which might be translated as uh, no traitors. And the list of prominent opposition leaders and journalists and activists uh, listed on this website. And one of these people was, uh, for example, Boris Nemtsov, who was killed later. And so it was all uh, a very ominous message to the opposition uh, in Russia to be much more careful in what uh, they talk publicly about the activities of the government. In April came the St. Petersburg session from which we played a clip of Putin at the start of this conversation. Tell us more about the message he was sending then and its impact. Uh, it was a very strange meeting because uh, some activists, some pro-Kremlin activists, uh, went to this meeting to talk about the Internet. And one of them asked a question about uh, Google and, uh, and some other companies and immediately uh, Putin attacked these companies, which was quite uh, anticipated. But and he said some, something strange. He said that he believes that the internet is a CIA project. So it seems that he, well, if we, of course we know that the internet was uh, built thanks to, uh, to to the agency funded by by Pentagon by the Ministry of Defense. But it seems for Putin. It was not, not such a big difference between CIA and Pentagon, and given how much, how many of conspiracy theories we have in, Russian, in the Russian society about CIA conspiracies, uh, it's, uh, it's, it has this effect. Yeah. And of course, from what we know uh, from uh, leaked documents about the way the National Security Agency in the United States uh, monitors uh, much Internet traffic. Yeah, of course. And uh, the message uh, Vladimir Putin wanted to convey is that the Internet is something very hostile for, uh, for the Russian digital sovereignty and the idea that something is invented by Americans and uh, governed by the Americans might be a real threat for, uh, for the Russian national security. That was his message. Uh, he even attacked the Russian internet companies for having foreigners at the boards of his companies. 
And uh, of course, it was a very special message for many Russian companies because uh, for many years, Russian companies believed that if they have foreigners and Americans that they bought, uh, it means that they are successful. They might do something successful uh, in, uh, in international markets. And now uh, we got this message from Putin. Putin had another meeting with leaders of the Russian Internet in June, one of whom spoke out to question overregulation. Describe that interchange. Well, it was not actually a question you know, of the Russian policy, because we all expected that uh, the Internet industry would try to use this opportunity to talk to Putin uh, to criticize government uh, ideas about the regulation of the Internet. The problem was that uh, the, the meeting we talked before in 1999 was actually the only meeting Putin had with the Internet for many, many years. And the meeting we got in June of 2014 was his second meeting with the Internet industry. So it was a very rare chance for the Internet to talk to Putin directly and to express the uneasiness with uh, the government ideas. But instead of, um, prevent, pre uh, instead of uh, presenting a position about what's going on, um, most of people who were present and invited to this meeting decided to be very silent. And only one guy, uh, Grishan, from uh, the company Mail.ru, he tried to ask some questions, but in such a strange manner, something like, Mr. Putin, do not think that we are crazy. We might walk with you. Just please explain some rules to us. That was his message. And, of course, Putin was... Uh, Oh, he, he, he looked very uh, well, confident, and his first remark was, look, there is no way to hide from us. <laughs> you fault most Internet leaders for obediently lending legitimacy to Putin's policies at that meeting, and he soon signed what's become known as the blogger's law. What does it do? Uh, the blogger's law is, uh, is about two things. Uh, one thing is uh, all bloggers uh, with more than 3,000 followers should be registered by the special government body. And, uh, well, most of, most of people, they, they want to talk about this, this part of the law. Uh, but actually, it's not such a big deal because not, more, not all of Russian bloggers will ask it, actually to get registered. For example, I have more than 3,000 followers on my Twitter and I was never asked by the government to get registered. The most dangerous part of, uh, of uh, this law is not about registration of bloggers. It's about how the Russian government see uh, what should be done by social networks and bloggers' platforms. And there is a special requirement in the law the requirement said that all companies which provide services for bloggers should provide direct access for their information and data to the Russian security agencies. So actually, this law is also about surveillance. It's about uh, that bloggers should be put under government control in the way of uh, their data, first of all, metadata, should be accessible for the Russian security services.
How has the Kremlin attempted to impose new restrictions on more global Internet giants like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, and how have those U.S.-based operations reacted? Well, unfortunately, uh, the Kremlin uh, found a way, or maybe they, they decided that they found a way to deal with global platforms uh, just at the time when we got Mr. Snowden landed in Moscow. And immediately, the Russian authorities decided to use and exploit Snowden's revelations to the effect that uh, actually they wanted to say and to pretend they want to protect personal data of Russian citizens from NSA spying. So what we got afterwards uh, in 2014 and 2015 was all presented by the Russian authorities under pretext of uh, protecting personal data of Russian citizens. And the most important idea they, they, they presented and they are trying right now to implement is to force global platforms like Google and Facebook and Twitter to uh, locate, to relocate the servers uh, to Russia, to have uh, Russian, they, they, they Russian users' data on Russian soil which actually is not about protection of the personal data of Russian citizens, because first of all, Russian citizens never ask the government to protect their personal data in this way, in this way. but it's, again, it's about access to their information. But the idea for the Russian security services and for the Kremlin is to force companies to open the, the doors to the Russian security services to their data, and the only way is to try to force them to relocate their servers. We got this legislation in force in September of this year, and we are still waiting what might happen. The problem is that the Russian authorities are quite, it's a long game. Uh, they immediately uh, gave global platforms another four months. So actually, they said that uh, they would not check whether global platforms complied with the legislation until January. So we are all, all now in Russia, we are all waiting for January. And the problem is that the American companies, and we are mostly we are talking about American companies, they are very uh, untransparent. They are not transparent about their dealings uh, with the Kremlin. They know almost nothing about what they are wanted to do. So we don't know whether they, to, to what degree they've been responding to specific queries for information from the government about Russian users of their services. And about how it, the, the problem is that we do not have uh, any statements from, uh, say, Twitter or Google about do we intend to comply with the Russian legislation of uh, so-called data localization. We just uh, don't know yet of, uh, of a position. All reports we have by now, we have all reports from the Russian side, from some Russian government agencies, uh, some Russian uh, internet providers, uh, and sometimes we get some reports that it seems that eBay decided to comply, Booking.com decided to comply, even Apple decided to comply, but these statements are not supported by the statements from the companies. It's all provided by the Russian side. 
Ironically, to the degree that the Ukraine crisis prompted escalation of Internet regulation, it also provided a dramatic illustration of how hard to control the new bottom-up technology can be. Talk about how Kremlin propaganda was contradicted online in very personal posts by members of the Russian military itself, their wives, and even more especially their widows. Well, the thing is that uh, on the one hand, it seems that the Russian propaganda campaign uh, in social networks is extremely effective. Uh, if you look at uh, what is going on in Russian social networks in Ukraine or in Russia or in the former Soviet Union countries, you might find that lots of people accept the Russian narrative about what's going on in Ukraine and now in Syria uh, because Russian propaganda is extremely emotional. It's, uh, it also plays on uh, uh, on some prejudices we have and the historical memory about the Second World War and, and, about, and about the mighty Soviet Union which was uh, destroyed by, by the West, etc. So we have this uh, historical heritage and the Kremlin propaganda is very good at playing on these feelings of resentment and disenchantment. But on the other hand, if we are talking about controlling the information, sensitive information, which might be really sensitive for the Kremlin, for example, about the Russian military involvement in Ukraine, surprisingly, we see that the technology wins and not, the, not propaganda. Uh, as I told you before, uh, the biggest Russian social network contactor was put under Kremlin control in 2014. But already in, uh, in the summer of 2014, uh, we got a lot of information about Russian military involvement in Ukraine thanks to Kontakte. Why? Because soldiers, soldiers uh, who were sent uh, supposedly in secret to Ukraine decided to boast of their exploits in Ukraine on social networks. And they, most of them were users of Kontakte. And they posted lots of information about themselves. They posted the names of the units, their geolocation, their photographs, and immediately they exposed the truth. And it seems in this case, uh, the government and the Kremlin miscalculated the threat. They thought that they can't control the message on social networks because they control the company. But in this situation, while not the company employees are in charge of the content, the content is generated by users, not by employees of the company or even journalists or activists. The content is generated by, in this case, soldiers or readers of the soldiers killed in Ukraine. That's why we got the situation where the company of Kontakte is under control, but users of Kontakte, they are the, maybe the most precious source of information about what's going on in Ukraine and now in Syria. It's fascinating. You also say the old-fashioned Kremlin tactics of regulation and intimidation are not keeping up with new technologies for encryption and anonymity, uh, notably something called TOR, T-O-R. Yeah, right. The problem is that the Russian approach to control the message on the Internet is uh, based on dealing with organizations, with companies, with Internet service providers, we have social networks companies, uh, we have uh, hosting companies, etc. But it's not uh, based on dealing with users. 
That's why uh, they always use intimidation, because when you have, when you rely on intimidation, you just need to find an organization, when to find a guy on the top, and you need to put some pressure on him. And that tactic might be extremely effective. But the problem is that right now we see the very interesting moment in the Russian history. Now the Russian authorities should find a way how to deal not with companies, but with users. Because it's about users, uh, and it's about their choice uh, when we are talking about circumvention tools, like Tor, what you mentioned. It. And uh, for that, uh, the, Russian the Russian government, they need to find a technical solution, how to, say, suppress the usage of Tor. We cannot, for example, just put pressure on the company Tor, because there is not such a company with the most co-office and the business they might lose if they... Uh, would be not welcomed by the Russian authorities. We need to find a technical solution, and we need to find a way to put pressure on users. And it seems they are not very successful. They do not have a technical solution, and maybe they do not know how to deal with not few troublemakers, but with thousands or maybe millions of users. It's a completely different problem, and it seems they don't know yet how to deal with it. How has all this impacted your own agentura.ru website? Uh, well, the thing is that when we have uh, uh, we had some crises, like uh, we got uh, this, um, when we had this Moscow protest in 2011 and 2012, of course, it provokes the government to go after independent websites, and uh, when we got lots of uh, so-called DDoS attacks, uh, denial of service attacks on our side, along with uh, many other independent websites and independent media. And uh, of course, it's a big problem when you are under attack. It's a, the other problem is that we are journalists, we are Russian journalists, and for us, it's extremely difficult today to uh, get our stories published in Russia. Uh, we just got a book published in the United States called The Red Web. And uh, it was published in the United States in September, but it's, uh, it's not published in, in Russia. We hope, we can only hope that one day it might find a way to Russia in Russian, but it was, as I said, it's, uh, now it's a very traditional way. If you need to, if you have something sensitive to publish, you need to find some Western publications or the Western publisher to get it published, and when, only after that, it might be picked up by some Russian websites or maybe some Russian media and uh, translated and published in Russia. So what's your bottom line on how Putin's war with the Internet will play out in the short run and the long term? I think in the long term, uh, I'm, I think he would, he, he would lose. I think it's... Uh, it's impossible to win this war with the Internet. The Russian idea of uh, dealing with, say, threats was always based on uh, so-called hierarchical approach. Uh, the Russian history is all about hierarchy. We, always, we tend to think for centuries about organizations and people in charge. That's why Putin, he cannot even think of something as say, the Internet, without someone in charge. 
and he desperately tries to find this guy in charge. So now he thinks it might be CIA or maybe, I don't know, President Obama himself. But of course, it, it's a big miscalculation because the Internet is all about, uh, it's all about networks. And networks, uh, by nature, uh, is uh, opposite to any kind of uh, hierarchy. And I think that might be is the biggest miscalculation for, for Vladimir Putin and for the Kremlin. Because the Russian system of controlling the message, of controlling the public space, of controlling people is uh, to go after troublemakers. But the network provides opportunities to people who are not activists, who are not journalists, who are not committed opposition leaders. If you have any kind of crisis, immediately the content on social networks is generated by users, by millions of them. And the hierarchical system of controlling the information cannot deal with millions. It's uh, it's a a completely different concept. Andrei Soldatov, thank you. Thank you. Andrei Soldatov is the editor of Agentura.ru, a journalist's website covering Russia's secret services. With deputy editor Irina Barogan, he wrote about Putin's war with the Internet in the fall 2015 issue of World Policy Journal under the headline Rusnet on the Offensive. Their new book about it is The Red Web, the struggle between Russia's digital dictators and the new online revolutionaries from Public Affairs Press. Also featured in the WPJ Fall Issues Food Fight section, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, on proposals for preventing today's massive food waste and loss, and on cuisine, nationalism, and controversy. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on a new face of gunboat diplomacy, U.S. Navy ships challenging Beijing's controversial expansion of territorial waters in the South China Sea. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.